Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word and we just trust you completely here and now to do a work in us and in your word or through your word by the power of your spirit for the exaltation of Jesus and for your glory. Uh, we are fully and completely dependent on you in this endeavor of knowing your truth and living your truth. And so we call upon you with confidence in the access you give us in Christ and with boldness, as your word tells us to, to say to you, give us what we know you want us to have. We know it's your will that we grow in your word. So we call on your spirit to teach us this morning. Open our hearts and minds to truth. Defend our hearts and minds from deception and lies and false teaching and give us clarity and doctrine so we can live fruitful, godly lives that not only honor you, but satisfy us in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So, end of 1 Timothy. Today, we'll finally finish the book, and we're in verses 20 through 21. <clears throat> and in this text, we get some specific commands concerning how we are, as the church, to manage the truth of God's word, since we are the stewards of God's truth on this earth. What we'll see is that these last two verses essentially summarize what it means to be a Christian, and generally speaking, how Christians are supposed to live their lives. So there's not a lot of specific clarity, like live your life in this particular way. It's more of just a general, here's kind of a general guideline for what Christians ought to be doing, what the church ought to be doing. My, Paul's kind of saying, this is my farewell greeting, but also it's filled with a really important thing that the church must understand, and we'll get to what that is. So this text ends up being pretty general about Christian living, but it is absolutely essential and vital and necessary for faithful, godly Christian living that glorifies God and satisfies us in him. So... We're going to see um, what the church is to do and how to do it. And there'll be essentially three ways to do it that we get from the text. And so we're in verse 20. I'll read 20 through 21. Paul writes, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And that's the end of the letter. Now, the big picture that Paul is conveying is the importance of the church preserving the truth of Scripture by proclaiming what is true, by deflecting what is false, and protecting the bride of Jesus by wrapping his body in his words. So that's, that's really kind of the general idea here. Uh, the importance of the church preserving, or better word, protecting the truth that is in Scripture. And we do it by saying what's true, teaching what's true. We do it by deflecting that which is false with truth. And we protect the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, with the words of Christ. Now, Paul is telling this to Timothy. 
I mean, you see this right at the beginning of verse 20. It says, oh, Timothy. So it seems very direct. We know that Paul's been writing this entire letter to Timothy. So we know it's always to Timothy. But we, what we see in Timothy is that there's oftentimes, though Paul's writing to Timothy, some of the things that Paul mentions in this letter aren't necessarily for Timothy to do, but for Timothy to lead the congregation in doing. I'll give you an example. Chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke... Under a yoke as slaves, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Well, Paul, Timothy's not a slave, so that doesn't apply to Timothy, but he's writing this to Timothy. So what is he really saying? He's saying, Timothy, this is the responsibility of your church. This is your responsibility to your church, that the people in the church who, to whom this applies, you need to lead them and guide them in this and teach them this. That's essentially what we're getting here in verse 20, chapter 6, verse 20. He's talking to Timothy, so it seems like it's specifically this is something only Timothy does. But we know that's not the case, because at the end of verse 21, he says, grace be with you. And that word you at the end of verse 21 is plural, and that indicates that the entire church is to engage in this command, which is to guard the deposit. So though it is specifically to Timothy, it is also a function of the entire church. Every single person in this room who is a believer, is responsible to the church to protect the church or to guard the deposit. We're going to talk about what guard the deposit means. Now, the Greek word for guard can mean watch, but here it means to protect. So Paul's telling Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Protect the deposit entrusted to you. And that word protect versus watch carries a much more intentional meaning. Being watchful is one thing, but being protective, being protective is more volitional, more motivated by action rather than reaction. I mean, think about it like this. When you're, um, one of my sons brought this up the other day. He was like, why do, um, why when there's a tornado and we haven't seen a tornado, do we call the tornado watch? But when there is a tornado, it's called a tornado warning. Shouldn't it be the other way around? They're warning you that there might be a tornado. And I was like, no, I think it makes more sense that they say it the way that... So we had this like little discussion about the wording, right? And it makes sense because when you're in a tornado watch, there is no threat present, but there's the potential of a threat present. Right? So the idea of watch has you kind of watching. So think about it this way. If I said... Uh, Will you watch my son for a minute? You'd say, sure. And you would just keep an eye on him. But if I said, will you protect my son? What would you say? From what? Right? Like, you notice that that watch is rather passive, while protect is far more proactive and attentive. It implies that there is already a threat present that intends to invade and attack that which is being protected. And that is what Paul means here when he tells Timothy to guard the deposit, that there are already threats against the deposit that intend to disrupt and destroy the truth. So we need to know what the deposit is. So the question is, what are those threats and what is the deposit that Timothy is supposed to protect? Now the threats, I'll just address those first. The threats that we face are poor doctrine, false teaching, and those who perpetuate those errors. Now, I had a discussion with someone this week, a little bit of discussion about what's the difference between like heresy, false teaching, and just mistakes at the pulpit. You know, and I said to this guy, I was like, I make mistakes at the pulpit. I've said things that are wrong before. And he's like, so that's not heresy, though. And I'm like, right. I'm not a heretic, 
but it doesn't mean I'm perfect. My doctrine isn't perfect. Your doctrine isn't perfect. But the essence of this entire motivation that Paul's getting us to is to get sound and correct doctrine. So there's a difference between mistakes and errors and you know mis- misspeaking at, at times during teaching. Um, this is why it's really important that we don't just count on Sunday mornings to be your only place of getting fruitful time in the word together as the body of Christ. Because if you're depending solely on this time, there's no opportunity for discussion. On Wednesday nights, we discuss the word. On Friday mornings, we discuss the word. The men do on Friday mornings. On Wednesday night, it's a mixed group of everybody. On Thursday nights, the women, they discuss the word. On Tuesday mornings, the women, they discuss the word. Okay? In my one-on-one discipleship with individual men, we discuss the word. When you bring me questions, we discuss the word. At Life Group, we discuss the word. So all of those opportunities to be in the word together and talk through things together versus Sunday morning where I'm in monologue and you are listening. There's no opportunity for conversation. Right? And so we need to be in the word together outside of Sunday morning so we can work through things together. So this guy who asked me the question about the thing that I said came up to me and said, well, I'm sorry that I, you know, I didn't mean to be like, you know, offend you or whatever. And I was like, I, I love that you're talking to me about things that you have questions about or that if you think I made a mistake, I need you to warn me. I've said things at the pulpit before where then I've walked off the pulpit and someone came up to me and said, you said this and this is not true. And I was like, you're right. It's not. I screwed up. <laughs> and, and I even thought, you guys, remember this show? It's, I think it's called Pardon the Interruption. It's a sports talk show. And they would go through all these topics. And then at the end, they'd have this guy who's listening the whole time mark down every error that they said during the show. And he'd call them out on every single mistake that they made. I was like, we should have that at the end of the sermon. Like, um, you quoted the wrong verse. Uh, you know, it just, I don't think we really should do that. But the point is that uh, we need each other. And we'll get to that. And that's in this text. We need each other. I need people to go, hey, I got a question about something you said. And when we're in the Word together outside of Sunday morning, it opens the door for those opportunities to work through those things. So uh, what we face is not mistakes, but false teaching, bad, faulty doctrine, and the people who perpetuate them. And we'll even see Paul call out a couple of dudes that are guilty of this uh, of, of heresy, essentially, to emphasize the necessity for the church to protect the truth from error and those who push false teaching. Because what happens is when people are in the church who push false teaching and poor doctrine, they tend to believe that they're right. And what it does is it spreads throughout the church like gangrene. I knew a person once who said to me, you should talk to the congregation about astrology. Uh, I think it was astrology. Which one's the one about the signs? Astrology? Yeah, now he's getting mixed up. Um, Astrology. And I was like, well, what do you want me to say? And she was like, you should tell them how good it is. And I was like, ah, it's not good. So (laughs) I'm not going to do that. And uh, I had to address that with that individual and say, listen, not only am I not going to talk about it, but neither are you. This is not true. We talked through it. I showed her Bible verses. We worked through it together through the word. I was like, this is why. These are the reasons. This is what scripture says. This is why we're not going to talk about astrology. It's, yeah. 
it's mysticism is essentially what it is. And you could look at that and say, it's just harmless fun. It's just, what's your sign? Oh, you're like this or like that. You know, it's just harmless fun. You could read a, you know, I don't know, some magazine that says, you know, you're, if you're a Virgo, here's your thing for the week or for the month. And this is what you're going to go or whatever, you know, and just, it could just be fun and played off like it's nothing. I'm like, it's, it's false teaching and it's rooted in something false. And we're not going to let it spread through our church because as we'll see from Paul, what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy is that when those things are let out, they start to spread and they create chaos and it hurts the church and it can kill churches. And so with this individual person, I set them aside. I talked through them, talked through it with them in the word and said, we cannot have this in the church. It is my responsibility to cut that off, which again, we'll get to more here. So there's a threat And sometimes the threat are heretics and false teachers who intend to destroy the church. Then there's heretics and false teachers who don't intend to destroy the church, but they think they're helping the church, but their doctrine is really bad, and they still want to spread it. And then there's people who are not intentionally trying to do anything evil, but they have bad doctrine, and they want people to know their doctrine, and they really do love God. They're kind of like the Israelites in the... Um, in the desert, thinking that by building the golden calf, they're really honoring God. And it's like, well, your intentions are right, but you're doing it wrong and it offends God. So there's a variety of different kinds of false teaching that can grow or places that it can come from in the church. And it is the church as a whole, not just the pastor, not just the elders, but the church as a whole that is to protect, we are all to protect the church, to guard the church from heresy with the truth. So what is the deposit that Timothy and us are to guard in which we've been entrusted with? The deposit is translated differently in other Bible versions. The NASB says, guard what has been entrusted to you. The NIV says, guard what has been entrusted to your care. And the ESV says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The reason the ESV uses the word deposit is because this entire phrase, what has been entrusted to you or what has been entrusted to your care, that whole phrase all comes from one Greek word. And that Greek word literally just means deposit. So the literal Greek here would be, O Timothy, the deposit guard. So that would be like... If you were to look at the actual order in which Paul wrote this in his Greek words, it would be in that order, O Timothy, the deposit guard. The reason we add these other words like what has been entrusted to your care is because that phrase is the actual meaning of the word deposit. You can see here on this uh, slide that the Greek word for deposit what it really means. And so you can tell that the translators take this word, this phrase, entrusted to your care or entrusted to you, and they stick it into the English because it helps us in English understand the meaning of the verse. If you need time to process this, pull out your phone and take a picture if you want. So this word, deposit, was used to communicate someone's responsibility to guard another person's possessions or possession while that person dealt with other business. And to have that possession returned to the owner in the same condition. 
So the meaning of the word deposit would have automatically implied and been understood by the first century readers as something important that they must take care of until the owner returns. And who is the owner of the truth? Jesus. So we are commanded to guard his truth until he returns. That's the essence of what Paul's getting at. Jesus is coming back. His truth is in the word. Guard the truth, church. Protect the truth, church, until he returns. The specific deposit or possession that the church is commanded to guard is the truth of God's word. Now, the truth here isn't only the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so when he says guard the deposit, he's not calling the deposit just the gospel that saves, like, you know, the truth that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. Believe in him and you'll be saved by grace and through faith, you'll be saved. So like that gospel message that we share with unbelievers, that's not the totality of the deposit. The totality of the deposit is the totality of God's word. Every word in scripture is the deposit because the truth within his word is what the church is meant to protect. Now, I would say that there should be an emphasis in protecting the gospel of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Because if we can't keep that right, then what does the rest of the truth and the word of God mean to us anyways? Like when I meet other people or other pastors from other churches or I hear of other churches or I hear their doctrine or I hear their gospel, if I hear their gospel and it's not the gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians, when Paul says to the church in Galatia, if anyone comes to you, anyone other than me, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven, comes and tells you a gospel other than the gospel I told you, let him be accursed. That's a pretty heavy statement to make. And, and so when I hear other gospels from maybe other churches or other people, other preachers or whatever, and I go, I don't trust any of their doctrine or anything they have to say about anything regarding the Bible because they don't even have the gospel right. They don't even say, or maybe they deny that Jesus is God. Maybe they deny that Jesus is man. Maybe they deny the necessity of his death for, uh, for salvation. I've heard people argue that God killing his son is cosmic child abuse and unnecessary for the payment of sins or things like how evil could God be to kill his own son and call it love. Clearly, these people who perpetuate those kinds of teaching don't understand the gospel and the meaning of the word of God or what truth is. And because of that, I'm certainly not going to listen to their perspective on, I don't know, something else in the Bible like the importance of worship or, you know, obedience to God. None of that matters to me if you can't even get the gospel right. And so the gospel itself, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is vitally important to get right. And in addition to that, what Paul is getting at is that this deposit that we're entrusted with is something we are supposed to guard, and it is the entire truth of Scripture. Now, for a moment, that can sound overwhelming, because how many, in, how many of you in here know every single truth in the Bible perfectly and have never made a mistake with it? None of us, right? So, obviously, we're not perfect at this, and we'll get to that. The imperfection of us in all of this and what that means. But Paul's been emphasizing the importance of sound doctrine all throughout this letter, and not only sound doctrine in the teaching so that the knowledge can grow in the church, but also the practice of that sound doctrine in the actual application of those truths in the church. I'll give you an example. 
In chapter 1, Paul goes on and on about the value of keeping and protecting and guarding pure, sound doctrine. He's communicating the importance of doctrine. And then in chapter 2, he takes that very doctrine and applies it to the actual function and instructions about how the church should be organized and how it should function. And Paul instructs us how those doctrines should be applied in the church as specific commands that we are to obey so that we preserve sound doctrine through sound practice. So one of the ways we preserve sound doctrine, we perpetuate and teach and keep sound doctrine, is by living that sound doctrine. Which again, how many of you in this room perfectly live sound doctrine? None of us. And again, we'll get to that. So the church guards the truth by doing two things. Know the truth. Apply the truth. That's super vague. It's very general. But that is the essence of what he's getting at here. Is the church guards the truth. We guard the deposit. We guard the doctrines of scripture. The truth of scripture. Every truth in the Bible that was given to us to communicate to each other for our growth and our ministry to one another. And the truth that we were given in the word of God that is meant for us to share with the world. All of this, everything from Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible was given to us to be guarded, protected, preached, taught, kept, and secured And and this is the command. And the best way to do that is to know it and live it. Now, that almost sounds easy. Oh, I just got to know it and then I just got to live it. But as most of you know, applying the truth is not easy. It is a lifelong journey of mistakes and failure to properly apply it. And then once we have made those mistakes and made those failures and have not lived it correctly, every time we fail to uphold the truth in the way that we practice living the truth, we then trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ as your confidence to cover your failures, to cover your mistakes, and to pay for your sins. And so with every failure to properly apply the word and the truth to your life, there comes with it a blessing from God. Sin does not bless God, but in our sin, God blesses us with the reminder and application of his grace in Christ to cover our sin. Because we depend not on our work to feel right with God, to feel good with God, to trust in God. We depend not on our work to make things right with God. We depend not on our work to guard the deposit. We depend on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So as we make those mistakes, as we fail to properly live out the truth that we're to protect, and one of the ways we protect it is by living it, and when we fail to live it and therefore fail to protect the truth, we're covered by grace. And trusting in his finished work also acts as confidence to lift you up and move you further into obedience and proper application of the truth. So when we make mistakes at applying the truth to our lives, and we don't live it the way we want to live it, the way we know we should live it, the grace of God not only covers our sin, but it picks us up. It dusts us off. It cleans you off. It's the reminder that sin you just did, that's not you. This is you. Here, let me dust you off and clean you off and remind you that 
In Christ, you aren't dirty. In Christ, you are pure. In Christ, you are clean. In Christ, you are redeemed. In Christ, you are perfectly righteous. You're positioned in a place of perfection. And the righteousness and perfection of Jesus that he has accomplished for us has been applied to us. And we have the fullness of the righteousness of Jesus fully available to us in the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And the grace of God is to remind us that that finished work of Jesus has purchased that reality for us that enables us to live that way. And nothing feels better than to hear that message after you've screwed up. And you will screw up. So we either mess up and don't apply the truth correctly, or we learn from that and move forward in God's grace. Or... We properly apply this truth, which is good. We, we learn a truth and then we live that truth in a righteous way. And that's good. But that also comes with challenges. Because proper application of living the real truth of God's word will most likely cost you something. There will always be some degree of sacrifice to obey God's word as a means of guarding the truth. There will always be some degree of sacrifice to obey God's word. That sacrifice could be you having to give up a sin or having to sacrifice something that's not sin. So you gotta give up a sin or you gotta give up something that's not essentially sin, like say freeing up some time to invest in another person. You gotta give up your time or give up a possession or give up something. It's, it's gonna cost you something. You gotta sacrifice Something or that sacrifice could be far more painful, such as sticking to your biblical convictions about the truth and that conviction that you stand on as an act of faithfulness to Jesus Christ might cost you a relationship. Or in extreme cases may even cost you your life. So there's always sacrifices when we obey the word. When we apply the word. So it's not as simple as just knowing the truth and applying the truth. Knowing the truth takes a lifetime. As does applying it. And both require some sacrifice on your part. And as Paul just told the rich in the previous verses before this. Doing this. Making these sacrifices. Stores up eternal treasure for our future joy in the God's presence. Meaning the sacrifice is worth it. Making the task to guard the truth through knowledge and obedience is worth it. So let me summarize how we guard the truth. And then I'm going to let Paul add more to it. So we guard the truth by doing two things. Know the truth, apply the truth. You could call that know the truth, obey the truth. Uh, But I like to use the word apply because application kind of allows some flexibility about what obedience means. And I want to give room for that because when you say obey the truth, it feels very rigid. Whereas applying the truth could have, uh, there can be gray areas about application of truths. Like we see that in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. And Paul talks about kind of the gray areas of living in the liberty of Christian life and how we apply the truth of the word to situations that aren't exactly or explicitly clear in scripture, right? So, so I like to say, how do we guard the truth? By knowing the truth and applying the truth, which really means obeying the truth. 
But Paul gives us more instruction for our growth in knowledge and for our application of that knowledge. And he teaches us this through another command. In verse 20, he says, Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul says the same thing again to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. But in 2 Timothy 2, 16, Paul adds to what it means when he says that people swerve from the faith by professing false teachings in irreverent babble. He'll get to that when we get to verse 16. So let's look at 2 Timothy 2, 15 through 18 quickly and just see the relationship between that text and today's text. So in 2 Timothy 2, 15, Paul writes, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. So there we find the same idea that Paul is telling us here, that it is our responsibility to guard the truth that is entrusted to you. That's exactly what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 2. Do your, best to, uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. That's what he's telling us here in 1 Timothy 6.20. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Handle the truth correctly. And then... Paul goes on in 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18, and essentially says the very same thing he says here in the middle of 20 to the end of 21. And he says in 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hamanius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, it seems that Hymenaeus and Philetus are probably at least two of the people that Paul is thinking of, but doesn't mention in 1 Timothy 6.20 when he says, For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. I think Paul's thinking about these guys. And what we see in 2 Timothy 2 is that the reason we must avoid irreverent babble and contradictions is because it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their ungodly teaching And living will spread like gangrene. But why does it lead people into more and more ungodliness? Because it is falsely called knowledge. People profess it like knowledge. This is a really big threat in the first century. There's this idea called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, the the root word of Gnostic is knowledge, to know. And Gnostics were people who loved nothing more than to know. Knowledge was their god. Where for us, knowledge isn't our God. Knowledge is the way to our God. But to them, knowing more was emphasized as their religion. To know was everything. And they would focus on knowledge. So any new knowledge they could gain, they would worship. Doesn't matter if it lined up, if it was right, if it was correct. That was irrelevant. There was no foundational conviction about a stable truth that held within all reason and logic and could endure any argument against it. That wasn't their primary concern. Their primary concern was learning new things. We see this in the book of Acts as well. When Paul travels to, and I actually forget the town, but he travels to a town, and it was a town where people just loved to know new things. So when they heard about Jesus, they're like, oh, something new. We'd love to hear about it. Because they didn't care what it was. It just had to be knowledge. They had to learn. They had to grow. And, And so this idea that the idea that Paul is conveying is people are going to people are going to teach and proclaim and say untrue things, and they're going to do it in a way that makes you think, "Wow, this is knowledge I should have." 
This is new. This is enlightening. Okay, if you're on social media at all, it's all over social media. Like as I flip through social media, I see pastor after pastor or preacher after preacher or just random dude in his basement with a Bible, one after another, all kinds of different people, men, women, even children, saying things like God says or the Bible says or here's a truth or have you heard this and you know all these things about whatever truth they might be pushing or professing. And I got to be honest, most of it I just listen to and I go, this isn't true. But they frame it in a really clever and creative way that draws your attention in. Right? And we see this in churches today as well. That there are a lot of churches that want to draw you in with spectacle and show. Or there's churches that want to draw you in with creative wording or creative uh, displays or um, uh, like marketing to kind of get you involved. Or, or you know, they, they'll... F- They'll frame their sermon series or their ideas around ways that get people to just be attracted to it. Now, I'm not opposed to attracting people to the truth, but it has to be the truth. And I see a lot of churches that don't do that. And I see a ton of churches that I love that do it well. And they, so you can do it on a big scale with grand grand marketing and, 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 and still teach truth. So, There's a variety of different ways that I see it happen, but my point is there's a lot of different things out there you need to be careful. Because if you go on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever, and you're being fed information about God and the Bible and truth and the word and humanity and sin and all these things, and then you believe it because you have no argument against it because you don't have a truth to oppose it, And then you absorb it and you believe it and then you come to our church and then you share it with believers. You're spreading heresy and it's going to spread like gangrene. So we need to know the truth to protect ourselves from the lie. And Paul says that false teaching will spread like gangrene, which is evidenced by Paul's last words. He says in 2 Timothy 2, he says they are upsetting the faith of some. We know that at work. We know that it has gangrenous effects because it... It, it has already worked in Timothy's church. Some people are getting offended and hurt. Not necessarily offended, but it is affecting their faith in Jesus. That lies are being spread. So the church has a responsibility to know the truth and to believe the truth and to teach the truth and to say the truth and guard the church from that which is not truth. And we can only do that if we know the truth. This is why I care so much about what you believe. Individually, one-on-one, I care about what each of you believes. And that might be why I seem too strict about certain things sometimes. Because I know that a little bit of incorrect doctrine can spread fast and become poisonous to the church. So I try to shut down poor theology quickly and hopefully lovingly. So to protect you and to protect the rest of us from the gangrenous effects of bad doctrine in the church. So it's, it's literally my calling. It's literally my calling to first, as Paul tells Timothy, he says to Timothy in hmm. Oh, where is that? I forget. So, 
I know he tells Timothy this, though. He says, keep a close watch on your teaching, and that will save you and your hearers. I think it's Second Timothy. Um, Hmm. I'm trying to find it. Does anyone know the reference? No? Okay. Either way, Paul tells Timothy, keep an eye on your teaching, and in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So what you see in that is Timothy given a command that his teaching is important, that his responsibility is the eternal well-being, the spiritual well-being, the life of the people in his church and himself, which means, and what is Paul's solution for how do I protect the church? How do I preserve and protect your faith in Christ? How do I preserve and protect my faith in Christ? Paul gives them an answer. Two things. First, take care of your own doctrine. Second, make sure you take care of their doctrine. That's the solution. Timothy, take care of your own. Make sure your doctrine is sound and then work on the doctrine of the people. It is literally my responsibility, my calling to fix your doctrine and your theology, to correct your doctrine and your theology, to teach you doctrine and theology. That is why I'm here. Now, there's other reasons I'm here. It's not the whole of my calling, but that is a huge part of my calling to you. It's your calling to trust me in that. And it is our calling together to work through those doctrines together so that we can grow together. And hence why I said before, it's important that we spend time in the Word together, not just on Sunday mornings, but in other situations as well, so that we can work through those things together. I do not want you blindly trusting what I say. I want you to be like the Bereans who heard Paul preach the gospel and they said, all right, dude, I'm hearing you, but I'm gonna go back and check with the Word of God to make sure what you're saying is true. And they did, and they believed. That's what I want from you. I want to take you to the word. I want you to go, I need to check with the word. I want all of us to be in the word. I want us to know the word and believe the word and trust the word. So I don't want you to trust Mark. I want you to trust the word, which is, I make it my responsibility. I don't make it my responsibility. God makes it my responsibility. Um, But I take that responsibility seriously that my primary objective is to feed you the word of God. Not the words of Mark, not the words of some, you know, John MacArthur or some other preacher or pastor that I heard. It's not my job to feed you anything but the words of God himself from his word to teach you its truth. And that requires a togetherness. I need you to trust me in that. But not blindly. A trust that says I... I'm listening to you. I will listen to your truth, the truth that you teach. I will believe the word that you say, and I will obey and follow the word of God as you communicate it to us. But I have questions, and I want to work through things together, and I want to be discipled. And there's more to it than just blind trust. It is a togetherness of trust. We work through these things together. That We should have that kind of relationship as a church. We should have that kind. You should be able to question me. And again, I've talked about this before. The way you question someone that God has put as an authority in your life, the way you question them is everything, right? If you're like, hey, uh, I have a question. You said this or that, and I, I want to understand what that means, and what about this verse, and what about that? Like, that's one thing. But to be like, 
I think you're wrong. That that's like, mm, <laughs> I don't think your heart's in the right place. <laughs> you know, that's like defiance to church authority, which is sin. You know, like, and so there's these nuances to how we navigate this relationship together where you've got teachers and those who are being taught, right? But, but how are we going to figure all that out? Together. We got to meet together. You got to come to Bible study. You got to come to life group. You have to be here. You cannot tell me, I want to be a part of this church and I'm going to show up on Sunday mornings and that's it. Have you ever tried to show up on a Sunday morning? I bet all of us have because we do it all the time. I know we do. I've done it. So I'm assuming you have too. And I'm assuming it happens more often than I'm probably aware of. If you ever show up on Sunday morning and you try to worship God when we're singing music and you, you're saying the words and you mean them and you believe them and you know them and you're also trying to muster up this like feeling of I really believe this and I want to feel this, but I don't. It's probably because you didn't spend any time in the word that week. You probably didn't spend any time in, the, in prayer that week. You'd be, be, like maybe a little bit here or there or something or, or maybe none at all. Or maybe not enough for you. And again, the objective isn't, hey, make sure you do the act of being in the Bible. Make sure you do the act of praying. As long as you do the act, you're good with God. That's not the point. The, the Bible and prayer are tools, they're instruments that God has given us that are a revelation of him that we use as communion with him. We get in the word and we talk to him and he talk, we talk to him in prayer and he talks to us through the word and we commune with God. You have to commune with God. The point isn't just make sure you read your Bible every day, check your box, five minutes of reading and five minutes of prayer and do that every day. Then when you show up on Sunday, you'll be ready to worship. That's not Christianity. That's religion. So what do we want? What does make Sunday morning worship fruitful for you? It's not just being in the word. It's not just praying. It's not, it's, it's not just going to Bible study. It's not just be doing things with the church. It's drawing closer to your Savior. It's communing with God himself in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is genuinely being and experiencing the presence of God by communing with him. He's the goal. He's the point. He's the purpose. He's whom we pursue. Jesus is it. And if Jesus is not the point of your daily activities, then you are wasting your life. And it will get you nowhere. And you will be miserable. And you will be disappointed. We talked about this on Sunday morning as we were discussing one of the young men brought up this idea of trying to like live for God, kind of sitting on the fence, live for God and live for the world. And, and I said, you know, it's this thing that I've repeated many times. When you're trying to enjoy God and enjoy the world, you'll have too much of God to enjoy the world and too much of the world to enjoy God. And you will be lukewarm. You will be neither hot nor cold and Jesus will spit you out. Because James says that that kind of living, that fence sitting in James 4, he says that is enmity with God. That's friendship with the world, which is enmity with God, which is hatred toward God. And it will earn you eternal damnation. You cannot sit on the fence. We are devoted to a savior who paid the price for your life, who gave his life so that you could believe in him through faith by, a great, by his gift of grace that he gave you freely, cost you nothing. And what do we do with that gift? We believe, or we say we believe, 
And then we're just like, okay, done, believe, check. Now I'm just going to go back to living my life. Do I was living my life? I'm already secured. I got eternal life. I'm good to go. I can live my life however I want. Now I should honor God. But if you're genuinely saved, the Holy Spirit is going to go, hey, that's sin. Don't do that. I love you. I paid for that sin. What are you doing? Don't go back to the grave. Dig it back up. It was buried. You're pulling it back out. You're dragging it back out. You look disgusting like a zombie that carried around that old dead body that I killed and crushed on the cross and I buried it in the grave and you're going to pull out that dead zombie body and put it over yourself and walk in that way and you call that living? You call that freedom? That's not freedom, that's death. And believers don't wear that flesh anymore. So stop living like that. Now, I'm not saying that we can be perfect, but what I am saying is, if you want to live in the newness of Christ and the new flat and the new body, the new person, the new man that he has purchased for you. If you want to live in that, you have to pursue him because it's his body that you're wearing. Christ is in you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's Paul in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer me. Me is in a grave. Christ is in this, and this is now Christ living out of this. And this is me now, a new thing. And we somehow let this flesh, and we all do it, we know what it feels like, I know it too. And and when you do, and if you really are saved, and you let that flesh take over at times in your life, the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin. And if he's never convicting you of sin, you might need to go to God in prayer and ask for salvation because you might not have it. So I'm not trying to create doubt in your salvation at all. And nor am I saying that your behavior determines your salvation in any way, shape, or form. But your behavior is a product of your salvation. And I'm not saying that If you don't obey it all the time, then you're not saved. What I'm saying is if you don't ever get the conviction from the Holy Spirit saying, hey, knock on the door, that's sin. The Holy Spirit does that for believers. And what he should be doing right now, who am I to tell God what to do? What I hope he's doing right now is knocking on your mind and on your heart and saying, hey, you hear what Mark's saying? Get in the word and get in prayer. And not for, the object, not for the object principle of just being in the Bible and being in prayer. But so that through those avenues, you could find me. That's what he wants from you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your soul. He wants your life. He wants your obedience. He wants your thoughts. He wants your marriage. He wants your job. He wants every relationship you have. He wants your free time. He wants your entertainment. He wants your clothes. He wants your thoughts. He wants every part of you to be filtered through him. He wants everything you do, everything you think, everything you say to be filtered through this. I love Jesus, my Lord and Savior, and I'm going to do everything for the sake of knowing him and honoring him and worshiping him and giving back to him something I do not owe him. Because I owe him nothing. But giving back to him that which pleases me and pleases him, my life. And I call it sacrifice.
Because that's what he did for me. Sacrificed. So, if you get anything from this, if it's like, oh, I guess, okay, I got to know the truth and, and live the truth. So I got I to gotta read the Bible and obey. You're going to get into a very legalistic functionality in your life. You're going to be like, okay, I got I to gotta read the Bible and then I got to do this thing. You're going to spend all day and all week. I got to do this thing. I got to make sure I obey this certain command. It's going to make me feel better. It's going to honor God if I just do it. You're missing the heart of the gospel and you're completely missing the heart of Jesus' teaching, which is God saying, I want your heart. Look at King David. That dude committed adultery and then murdered the dude's, the, the woman's husband. If I did that, you'd fire me. Right? You'd be like, Mark, uh, adultery and murder. I don't think you're qualified to lead the church, right? And what does God give David? The kingdom. Why? Why? Is it because of his actions? No, it's because of Psalm 51. That's why. That David was crushed when Nathan called him out. And he repented of his sin. And what does God say about David? That is a man who is after my heart. That's what God cares about. Your actions, your obedience, your life, that is simply a reflection of the heart. The actions themselves have meaning, but they are not the goal. So don't just read the Bible. Don't just pray. What I'm telling you, pursue pursue the presence of Jesus. Pursue the presence of God and the Holy Spirit by communing with God. Essentially, we guard the truth by knowing Jesus and obeying Jesus. And that comes from loving Jesus. And in order to know Jesus, we must know the word. And in order to obey, Je- to obey Jesus, we must absorb the word. Like you can't follow him if you don't know what he says, right? He actually says in the Gospel of John, my sheep know my voice and they what? Follow me. Right? They hear me and then they follow me. So, we need to hear his voice. And his voice is in the word. So we must know the word and we can't just know what it says. We have to absorb it. Like Psalm 119, 11. I've stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. The way to obey is to know the word. It's stored up in our heart. Or to absorb the truth you learn so that it becomes ingrained in your entire being. And then it becomes a part of who you are so that you live it organically as a product of the Spirit's powerful work in you. So we tend to think of the importance of knowing the Word and living the Word to be a matter of like personal accountability to God or that it's important that we glorify God. What I mean is we tend to think of like my responsibility to know the Word and to obey the Word is good for me and good for God's glory. So it's personal and it's for God. It's for me and it's for God. And those are true, and those are real reasons for obedience. But now Paul tells us that there is something more to it. There's something more, not more important, but also important that is at stake in your individual growth and knowledge and obedience. And what is at stake is the health of the body of Christ. Meaning, my life affects your life. And your life affects my life. Why? Because if you chopped off my arm... Do you think that would have an impact on my other arm? Yeah. 
because now my other arm has to pick up the weight. It has to carry the difference. It has to do jobs it couldn't do before. It has to do jobs now that it didn't have to do before. I'm missing an arm. If you cut off my right arm, I got to learn to write with my left arm and type with one hand and shoot a basketball left-handed because I will still play basketball with one arm. So (laughs) you better believe that. One leg, I don't know about that. But I'm telling you, if you cut off a body part, the the rest of the body has to pick up the slack, right? But what are we? A body, an organism, and the organism of Christ, the body of Jesus. If you're dying spiritually, you're leaving a gap in the church, and the rest of the church has to pick it up for you, which is great because Galatians 6 says, Bear, the bur- bear, each other, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So of course we'll pick up the difference for you because we love you. Of course we're going to do that. But the point is that we are all dependent on each other. If you're hurting spiritually, it's going to hurt us. If you believe false things, that's going to hurt us. If you're spreading lies and non-truths and bad doctrine, that's going to hurt us. If you're sinning, that's going to hurt us. If you disappear and don't come anymore and you just vanish, that's going to hurt us. And the body has to stitch itself together and, well, Christ stitches us together. And we're going to have to function by picking up the difference. Of course, the way that you live your life is going to affect the rest of the body. This church is dependent on you growing in knowledge and of the truth. And, and this church is dependent on you applying that truth. And each of us knows how hard that process is. Listen to me. Every single one of us knows how hard that process is. Growing, that's hard. It takes a lifetime to grow. And we still don't get to perfection in this life. So given that we all know how hard the process is, we must give each other something that is essential. Essential. God gave it to us. It was essential that God gave it to us and we need to give it to each other. That is grace. This is why Paul says at the end of verse 21, grace be with you. And again, that you there, that's plural. So what he means is grace be with you all as you pursue the knowledge of the truth and obedience to the truth as a means to protect the truth within the church. You may think of this phrase, grace be with you, as kind of this Paul's farewell greeting, salutation, like, oh, uh, you know, I'm done talking, uh, grace be with you, adios, see you later. It's more like um, everything I just told you about guarding the deposit, that's going to be costly. We're talking about knowing the truth and living the truth. That is going to be, if done right, sacrificial on the part of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is going to grow. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to be filled with joy. It's going to be filled with pleasure. It's going to have its ups and downs. And it is going to require, because everyone who attempts this is going to fail constantly in a variety of different ways. Which means it's going to require from the rest of us a tremendous amount of grace to each other as we fail. And as we sin. And as we make mistakes. If God gave us the grace to save us, then how could we not just give out portions of that grace to each other? I have seen this church, not the people in this room, but what used to be this church, tear each other to pieces because there's no grace in a church that has the name Grace Church. 
And I have seen people leave because of the way others treat them. I have seen people destroyed emotionally because of the way others treat them. I have seen this church split because of the way people treat each other. Because there's no grace. Anytime you feel like not giving somebody grace, just think about what you deserve. And what you'd get if God didn't give you grace. And just maybe your perspective on them will change a little bit. We must avoid that which is not true by knowing that which is true. We protect ourselves against lies and bad teaching and poor doctrine by knowing the truth. And in that endeavor, we are all, we must all be gracious to one another because it's not an easy way to live our life. Just as Jesus promised, Jesus promised it's not easy. He said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, which is exactly what Paul's telling us to do, he says, let him do these three things. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Deny yourself, not easy. Our sinful nature loves ourselves more than it loves God, but we are no longer that old version of ourselves, are we? To deny yourself means to deny the power of your sinful flesh and to live in the power of the spirit that Jesus has provided for you. And if you want to do that, you have to commune with the presence of God in prayer and in the word and in Bible study and with the church. I'm not saying you have to be at everything all the time that the church offers. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you do, you're good, and if you don't, you're bad. What I'm telling you is you ought to thirst and hunger for the word of God. And if we're giving you opportunities to to feed, then why wouldn't you show up if you're hungry? Jeremiah 15, 16, I found your words. I ate them. That's how hungry he is. Not literally. He didn't pick up paper and put it in his mouth. He's he's being, you know, uh, uh, figurative. I found your words, I ate them, and it was the delight of my soul. That's why I want to go to Bible study. That's why I want to be here on Wednesday nights. That's why I want to be here on Friday mornings. That's why I want to be here on Sunday mornings. We've got to be hungry for God's word. And that hunger should lead us to Christ. And the second thing Jesus tells us, take up your cross. Not easy. It means life with Christ is going to cost you. It it will cost us something to deny ourselves and to follow him. There will be a sacrifice. And that sacrifice often produces some degree of suffering, which is required to test the genuineness of your faith. Yes, your suffering is a product of your sacrifice, which is meant to test the genuine nature of your faith. And I get that from 1 Peter 1, 6-7, where he says, You have been grieved by various trials. Why have we been grieved by various trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, meaning the trial tested the genuineness of your faith, may be found to result in praise, glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the third thing Jesus tells us is, follow him. Follow me. Not easy. Following him means following him all the way. Following him to Golgotha. Following him to the cross. Following him to suffering. Following him to hardship, to ridicule, to mocking, to rejection. And to all of that which Jesus went through. And in doing so, he leads us to glory. 
As much as I hate to minimize the full spectrum of what it means to follow Jesus in this life, it essentially boils down to what Paul is teaching in 1 Timothy 6, 20 through 21, that we must know the truth and obey the truth. And Jesus is the truth. So it is Jesus whom we pursue. And we find him in the word. And in that endeavor, your grace toward each other is required because if we don't give each other grace, we don't help each other in the difficult journey of faith. We will devour each other and we will kill this church. And I promise you, I will scrape that out of the body before it does kill the church. Because that's my calling. We guard against a false gospel, false teaching, bad doctrine by knowing the truth and obeying the truth. And in that effort, we need each other's help and we definitely need each other's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we know that, we know what you know. It's not easy for us to, to follow you and certainly impossible to do it perfectly Uh, but you did it perfectly jesus you were perfectly obedient and look how hard that was your life was significantly harder than ours far more pain and suffering than we've faced and then to end in a separation of you from the father in an experience that you had never experienced before on the cross is a suffering that we will never have to know because you did know it. So you understand how hard this is, better than we do. And so we call on you, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who is now our example, to join us every day in prayer and in the word, to commune with you so we could see your face, hear your voice, know your words, experience your presence and be satisfied in you. And in doing so, you would lead us every day in truth. And as we fail, you would cover us with a blanket of grace and pick us up and carry us forward. And when we succeed, we would exalt you and praise you for your glorious work. You deserve all the glory. We just wanna be instruments that you have called to guard your truth to teach your truth, to live your truth, to love you, to be satisfied in you, and to bring you glory. It's not easy, God. And you know that it's not easy for us. So you not only gave us your spirit, you not only gave us your word, you not only gave us prayer, but you gave us each other. So help us help each other. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.